We've got some fresh new young talent doing some things that I know you haven't heard before. One, two, three, listen. Welcome to the Launch Yourself Today podcast. My name is J. David Trotter, and I'm here to help you get unstuck, clarify your goals, and launch yourself today. I want to let you know that some of our conversation today is probably not appropriate for younger ears, and you may want to put some headphones on to listen. I'm not sure when I first heard about sex trafficking, but I'll never forget seeing it unfold before my own eyes. In a few minutes, you'll hear me talk about seeing it firsthand in India, Thailand, and China, and then I began to hear about it happening in the United States. I just finished producing and directing a documentary on orphans in India when I went back to my distributor and broached the subject of trafficking. I said, if I produce a documentary on sex trafficking in the United States, would you be willing to distribute it? They said yes, and I spent the next two years intensely focused on a film called In Plain Sight, Stories of Hope and Freedom. My team and I traveled to six U.S. cities and captured the stories of six female abolitionists who had become aware of the issue of trafficking and chose to do something about it. Not only did the film come out in 2015, but so did a benefit music album and three accompanying books. Since that time, the film has been screened in over 250 locations through grassroots screenings. During that time, I learned about so many incredible organizations that are fighting to end trafficking around the globe, and one of them is known as Dressember. Founded in 2013 by Blythe Hill, Dressember empowers thousands of advocates around the world to take on the creative challenge of wearing a dress or a tie during the 31 days of December. The dress or tie serves as a conversation starter of sorts to educate people about modern slavery and raise money for the cause in the process. In December 2018, Dressember raised $2.4 million for 12 grant recipients. Can you believe that? That is huge. And not only are you going to be inspired as Blythe tells the story of starting the organization, but my hope is that your heart will be captured by the issue of trafficking so that you'll want to take action. So let's jump into my conversation with Blythe Hill. Well, Blythe, thank you so much for taking time to hang with me today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell me, first of all, how did you become aware of the issue of human trafficking? Tell me, tell me that story of how that kind of came to light in your, in your uh, worldview. Yeah, so I was in college. I think I was about 19 years old the first time I heard about human trafficking. And I, I stumbled on an article about the sex trafficking industry in India and I was just horrified. I, I had no idea that, that that was happening, that, that slavery was still happening, that it was happening in this form. And it just, um, it really stirred something inside me that I had never felt before, just this immediate sense of urgency to do something about it. And a sense of, um, like I said, just horror that, that this is happening and, and incredulity, really. Hmm. So you began to read about uh, the issue in India, which I've been to India like nine times and I've stood in a red light area. I've hung out with the kind of the pimp, the owner. 
I mean, I even took my son. We took our kids in 2009 for Christmas for two weeks. And it's such, I have this weird picture of my son who was like five or six at the time standing with the pimp in the red light area because there's a relationship with the organization that we travel there with. And it's like this beautiful picture and yet this really weird, you know, sad picture at the same time. Mm. It's kind of crazy. So you read about this article and what did that begin to do in you? Like what, there's this incredulousness that you, what was the next step for you? Yeah. So I, I immediately started looking for a way to personally engage in the issue. And I was really frustrated because I felt like, oh, I like, you know, I have to be in order to significantly engage in this issue, I have to totally reroute my career path and I have to become a lawyer or a psychologist or move to India and get into social work or um, law enforcement, criminal justice. And, um, and I thought about, I thought about it a lot. I, I thought, you know, maybe that's how strongly I felt. I was like, maybe I should kind of reroute towards one of those, those pathways, but it never really felt, I never really felt settled in that. And it didn't really feel like none of those paths felt true to who I am and, and how I'm wired. And, um, and it was tough because the things that I just naturally enjoy felt kind of shallow in the grand scheme of things. Like when I sort of compared them, it was like fashion and blogging, um, writing and, um, you know, it just, I was like, well, how can I, you know, it just didn't seem possible to connect Mm -hmm. those dots. And so for years I just felt that, tension of feeling so passionate about something and yet so powerless to do anything about it. Um, and then it's such a big issue. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. And it's, it's really overwhelming. It's, um, it is hard not to feel despair, you know, Mm -hmm. when you hear the stories and when you hear the, the statistics, just the sheer number of people and the systemic, um, the issues beneath the issues, you know, misogyny and and racism and poverty and um, political judicial abuse and corruption. There's just so many complexities behind it as well. So um, anything else starts to feel like a bandaid a little bit, you know, like this is just like a tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Uh, So many issues. Yeah. I, I totally resonate with that. When I began to, I actually saw it in India firsthand myself and then I saw it on a business trip in Bangkok, Thailand. Mm-hmm. I was um, there. Um, we were sourcing some fabrics for... Uh, uh, actually, you don't want me back up on that. I saw it in Bangkok, Thailand. I saw it in China firsthand on a business trip. We were sourcing some fabrics for a plush toy manufacturing company that I was involved in. And they took us down to the like a, a basement of a hotel. And they said it was a karaoke bar club. And we walked in and it was kind of a big living room with like this big surround couch. And I was there with a business partner and there were a number of um, business people that were taking us there. And there was, you know, all this alcohol and I'm not a big alcohol drinker myself. So I was just kind of like, oh, no, no, I'm fine. And all of a sudden they brought in this group of about 20 young women that were beautifully dressed in, of course, Chinese uh, dresses. And, and they looked at both of us and said, um, which one would you like? And I, I was shocked. I looked, I'm like, I was confused. Like, it's like my mind was not making the connection. I thought this was karaoke, um, which I'm not into karaoke either, but, <laughs> and I, I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm fine. You know, I, I, and I'm still, my mind is spinning. 
And then they looked at me and said, are you sure? You know, how about this one? How about this? One? I don't know. No, I'm fine. And uh, they were wanting, I, I started to ascertain that these girls would just kind of hang out with you for the evening while you're doing karaoke. And then after that, I'm assuming something else was supposed to happen. And then they looked at me and go, oh, we know what you want. You want a boy. And they all started laughing at me. And so now I'm in a room full of business, business people that are laughing at me because I'm not partaking in whatever they were. And my mind was blown away by this. Mm. Uh, and then I began to hear about it in the United States, you know, mm-hmm. of course, too. And that's really when my mind was, was really opened up. So you've got this, this one track of your writing, you're into fashion, there's this passion for you there. Then there's this issue of, of trafficking and you're learning about that. Um, tell me about this whole thing that comes up where you're just wanting to um, kind of as a, as a style challenge, wear a dress. Cause this is, as I understand the story separate from the issue of trafficking in the beginning, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So on a totally different wavelength, you know, I was still in college and I was an English major. So just buried in books and feeling a bit, um, just bogged down by the academic, you know, routine of it all. And, and I'm someone like, I, I like to craft, I like to bake, I like to make things with my hands and I just had no time for any of that. And so I was starting to feel like, you know, it's like therapy for me to, to get to make something. And so, um, I thought, where did you go to college by the way? I went to Cal state Fullerton. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah. Um, and so I, was, I just had this idea of like, well, I have to get dressed every day. So maybe, maybe that is where I can add some creativity, you know, to my day. And so I came up with the idea to try wearing a dress every day for a month. My first idea was to try a scarf every day for a month, but, um, it's, uh, when oh, I love puns, so I was thinking like scarf timber, <laughs> um, but it is way, it's still way too hot in Southern California in September right. to wear a scarf every day. So, um, the next idea was dresses. Um, and it happened to be November that I had the idea. And so the next full month was December. And I told, um, I told my boyfriend like, okay, I'm going to wear only dresses for the month of December and then came up with the name Dressember and was like, oh, now I have to do it. I love that, that name. Um, but it was just going to be like a one-time thing. You know, I, I wore a, that, that time I wore a different dress every day in December. Um, you already had 31 dresses. I had 30. I love, yeah, I've always, <laughs> I've always loved dresses. It's like an entire outfit in one piece of clothing. So, um, yeah. And I, I did it and I never planned on doing it again. Um, but then the next year, some of my girlfriends wanted to do it with me. And so I was like, okay, sure. Like they must, they must be bored too. So sure, let's do this. Um, and then the next year, their girlfriends wanted to join in. And it was at that point that I started thinking like, oh, like this, there's something to this, you know, like people like this and, and it's not, just my friends humoring me. It's, um, you know, people who don't even know me are wanting to be part of this. And I joke that I have a lot of bad ideas that never get that far. So I knew how to recognize one that was like, Oh, this, yeah, this is a good one. Um, and so that's when I started thinking like, okay, maybe, maybe I can use this for, um, for, you know, add a heart to this and add a cause and, and a campaign element. Um, but I was pretty dubious about it because I was like, you, no one's going to donate. Like we're just, we're just getting dressed. We're not running a marathon. Sure. Um, 
You're not even sweating for this money. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. So it took another couple of years to kind of get it together and really go out on a limb and, and try it. But when I was thinking about what cause to align with, it was just a no brainer for me. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, yeah, this is like, maybe, you know, maybe I can finally, you know, have find, this is my way to engage in in the issue the fight against human trafficking. And Mm -hmm. maybe we can raise a little bit of money, a little bit of awareness um, we'll see, you know, it mm-hmm. felt, it still felt very like, well, I don't know, like this, this could look really silly. Like, are people even going to donate? But, um, yeah. that was, so 2013 was the first year that it became a campaign. And I set a goal for us to raise $25,000, which just felt like shoot for the moon, like so ambitious, a bit scary, but I was like, okay, well maybe, you know, maybe we can kind of come close or like, we'll see, you know, the sky's the limit, like shoot for the moon. And then we hit that 25,000 in three days and we raised $165,000 that first, that month. Um, and so then I realized like, oh, this is a much better idea than I yeah. realized. And so I applied for a 501c3 and that um, that was granted about nine months later. And it's just been snowballing ever since. Hmm. So we, we just wrapped our sixth campaign year and we had roughly 8,000 men and women register uh, to wear dresses or ties during the month of December. And we raised um, $2.4 and yeah, so in the last six years of December, we have raised about 7.5 million mm. and we've expanded to support 12 different anti-trafficking organizations across the U.S. and across the world. Um, and it's just the most incredible adventure I've ever been on. It's just amazing to see, you know, to be able to bridge these, these two things that felt so disconnected, you know, the being interested in, in fashion and, and wordplay, and then so passionate about engaging in, in human trafficking and creating that pathway between the two, not just for myself, but for so many other people who Mm -hmm. have been feeling the same way. Like, yeah, I want to do something about this too, but I don't have much money to give, or I'm a stay at home mom, or I'm an accountant or, you know, fill in the blank. Um, we can't all be investigators and, and lawyers. And so right. um, it's just really amazing to have built this community of, of everyday advocates who, you know, have a high level of passion about this issue. Mm-hmm. There are so many issues that are in the world, you know, that you could have been captured by or something that you could have connected to the idea of fashion. What is it about this particular issue that, grabbed you versus something else? Yeah, it, it took me a while to, to make the connection of why I felt so passionate about it. I kind of took it for granted for a few, several years, actually. I thought, you know, if this is, this is just something everyone is outraged by. This is, if, if people knew about it, they would be horrified and they would feel the level of, um, urgency and passion that I feel, um, and I think, um, you know, there people, everyone has their own sort of reason for feeling passionate about this or any, any given issue. But again, I really like kind of universalize my, the feeling that I was feeling. Um, so it took a, a couple years into 
the journey to really make the connection that, oh, the, the reason that this starts this fire inside me started this fire inside me and continues to like fuel the fire, um, is really because of my own experience of sexual abuse as a little girl. Um, I was about four years old the first time I was molested and just for years carried, um, the responsibility of that experience and, um, this tremendous, like shame and um, doubt about my own like worth and lovability. And it really, it took into my twenties to really process um, that experience and really let it go and, and, and free myself from it somehow being my fault or somehow making me less valuable than, than anyone else. And um, so I, I had, feel like I had a glimpse into, um, well, I guess not, not just a glimpse, but, you know, like really experience what, what sexual abuse can do to a person. And, um, and that is why it continues to just fire me up that millions upon millions of women and girls of all ages are exploited, um, repeatedly, habitually, violently for the profit of another person. Um, yeah, it just, it, it tears me up and it keeps me, that's what keeps me in the fight. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, like any job it's work and there are things that I love about it. And there are things that I don't love about it, but, um, I think, it's, it really separates from any of the other jobs I've had in the past where I don't, I don't see myself burning out anytime soon, at least on the mission behind it. Um, and that really keeps me, keeps me going and keeps me fighting. Mm -hmm. I remember I've interviewed multiple uh, survivors of trafficking and for whatever reason, as we're talking, one particular woman comes to mind in, um, little rock, Arkansas, and, you know, through tears, she was at a recovery home, a, a rehabilitation home. And through tears, she's just saying, I finally feel safe. Mm-hmm. Like, I finally feel like I can go into my room and nobody's going to come into my room. You know, I can close the door and it's a safe place. Mm. And there's no sense of the fear of, of that. And, you know, that's something that my daughter and so many people take for granted that sense of safety and which we would want for all of not only our kids, but every person in the world, we want that sense of safety. And so um, I love that motivation and you know, that how you've turned in something so tragic, so painful and and have created motivation out of it. So beautiful. Um, You know, there are probably, I don't know how it's possible, but it probably is possible that there are people listening that are going, is this really an issue? You know, is this really, aren't, aren't these women, if they're underage, perhaps they haven't chosen, you know, really underage, but, but um, how are these women not choosing this? And one particular example that's current right now in the news is of an NFL owner who was arrested for um, 
going to a day spa in Florida and there was a, unbeknownst to him, a human trafficking bust. It was, you know, going on probably an investigation long-term. For those don't who understand what's going on behind the scenes, whether it's a day spa or something else in the United States, because I think we think, okay, yeah, India, okay, yeah, Thailand, okay, China. But like in the United States, help people kind of understand how trafficking works. Like, how is that girl or woman um, participating in a day spa against her volition? Like, isn't she there because she wants to be, you know what I mean? Like help people break Mm. that down. Yeah. So that in that case, um, and it's not unfortunately a unique case, you know, I mean, it's, it's like a standout case because it was uh, the NFL coach, but um, in that case, the, the women who were being trafficked were from another country. Um, I think it was China. It was somewhere in Asia that they had been trafficked from. They had presumably been offered a legitimate job in the U S and trusted someone enough, probably even paid their way over um, maybe illegally um, to come over and, and start a new life. And, And that's part of the tragedy is, is someone is really, optimistically and very courageously leaving everything they know to begin a better life, what they think is a better life in, in the U S or in another country. Um, and what probably happened is the traffickers held all of their documents. Um, like I said, they were probably there illegally. And so they didn't feel safe to go to anyone, you know, go to the police because they would be deported or, you know, I'm in a foreign country. Maybe I'll be arrested. Maybe I'll be in prison for the rest of my life. Who, who knows? Um, and so then they were in this case forced to live in the day spa. I think that's how they, the, um, investigators caught on as there was a report from the, the health uh, health inspection that it looked like someone was living there, like beds and clothing and medicine and personal items. Um, and so that doesn't always happen. Sometimes women or girls are, are transported between one sort of house where they live probably, you know, often way too many people like beyond capacity, um, and then transported to a business where they're then forced to work. And they're either told that they're paying off the debt from their, trip over or, you know, whatever they owe for, for being brought over, um, or that they have to pay for, and, or that they have to pay for their current lodgings. And so they often never see any of their money or, um, they're undereducated or poor individuals. And so they don't, maybe even know how to do math. And so they're being exploited as far as like, oh, well now there's interest on what you owe. And, um, it's just a cycle of, uh, of abuse and exploitation. And so, um, whether there was physical violence or not, um, you know, the strict definition of trafficking, it, it could involve physical force, violence, or just, just in quotes, um, coercion, manipulation. Um, and that's where, you know, if someone has control of where you live and they have control of your documents and they have control of your paycheck, um, you are in a very vulnerable position and you're in a foreign country, you're gonna do what they say, regardless of, of whether they're physically abusing you or not. And so that is representative of, you know, there are a number of cases like that. Um, 
Asian massage parlors. Um, I think what's surprising to a lot of people when, when we talk about trafficking in the U.S., if they are willing to admit that it happens here, there is still this perception that um, the people who are trafficked in the U.S. are are immigrants or are, you know, they're not citizens. And the studies are showing us that actually the majority of them, something like 70% of those trafficked in the U.S. are American citizens. Um, and what happens a lot is there's this overlap between the foster care system and trafficking in the U.S. Um, so traffickers, traffickers are not brave. They are opportunists. And so they go for the low hanging fruit. They go for like the, the path of least resistance. You know, how am I going to be able to profit with the least risk? And, um, they know to prey on girls in the foster care system because these girls don't have families who are um, advocating for them. They're not going to go they're They don't have families who are going to pressure the police to find them. If they go missing, um, they can kind of easily swoop in and fulfill this uh, father boyfriend role in a girl's life, shower her with attention and gifts and, um, and offer her a warped sense of love and belonging that she's always craved. And so it's really insidious because it's this incredibly emotionally manipulative relationship where a girl um, is maybe even in love with her pimp, uh, her trafficker. And um, she it's a very unhealthy relationship, but it's better than what she's experienced in the past. And it's more consistent than anything she's experienced. And so there are a number of women who I think are, um, are trafficked who, um, who are not able to self identify as trafficking victims because we as a larger society don't even identify them as victims of trafficking, we identify them as prostitutes. And we think, no, they're choosing this. They're sure they're in an unhealthy relationship, but they have chosen that this is their lifestyle. And, um, it's just, it's really unfortunate. I mean, this other studies have shown that, uh, a victim of trafficking in the U S is much more likely to first self-identify as a victim of domestic violence. And then it might be years later, it might be a decade or more later, uh, that she real like realizes, oh, I, I was trafficked. Like that was that's actually what trafficking looks like in the U.S. Um, so I think the more that we can kind of change those misconceptions around trafficking and what it looks like in the U.S., the the quicker we'll be able to change the course of some women and girls' lives. Um, I think what's also interesting in the U.S. is, well, I mean, you know, anytime you have those, like, when when the chains are invisible and they're emotional, um, we you see it in cases of like domestic violence. Well, we were I mentioned that where um, you know you. You, you can always look at a situation from the outside and think, well, why doesn't she just leave him? And maybe she does try to leave him. She leaves him two or three times before she's able to finally actually leave him. And so that's, um, it, it's similar in, in a case of trafficking too. The rates of reentry are really high, again, because she thinks that she loves him and maybe she has a child with him or she doesn't feel she has any marketable skills. Uh, she gets used to a certain lifestyle. Um, or maybe she has a criminal record, you know, some traffickers intentionally 
force their um, victims to commit crimes so that they have that, they can kind of hold that over them. Like, well, you know, you can't go to the police or, or, you know, what are you, what are you going to do with a criminal record? Um, So there's just, there's a lot of layers to it. And that, that feeling, I just can't even imagine of being so stuck, you know, so stuck that you, you don't even have options. If you feel like, well, I don't have family or I do have family, but they don't care about me. Or maybe I don't speak the language. That's a whole nother issue. Um, that's just that feeling of stuckness is so that sense of powerlessness. What, what else am I going to do? I'm just coping. And, yeah. and also from my understanding, there's such, such a high rate of uh, drug and alcohol abuse in order yeah. to cope with that feeling of stuckness and cope with what they're being asked to do. Um, so now the pimp's holding even drugs in front of them to go, well, I'm the, I'm your source. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very complicated. And that's what can make it feel, I think, so overwhelming for people. Like, where do I go? What do I do? How do I help? And one of the things that I love about what you're doing is that you're partnering with existing organizations that are doing great work. Tell me about the organizations that benefit from this work. You don't have to go down through the list, but how do you choose the organizations? What do the organizations do? How are those organizations on the front lines helping? Yeah, so we we currently have 12 grant partners. Two are international and 10 are domestic, um, spread all across the U.S., and we started with we started with one international partner, uh, International Justice Mission, back in 2013, and then slowly began adding more. Um, and this last year, we were able to add a number of domestic partners. We we did add our first domestic partner in 2016, and then we added nine more within the last year. So that was a big. Um, a big round for us of, of adding and expanding our partnerships. Um, but we, we felt, and we were getting feedback from our fundraisers that like, okay, this, this isn't just an issue that's happening across the world. It's happening here in the U S and, um, people were telling us, and we also felt that we want to have an impact locally as well as internationally. And, and it was cool to get that like pressure, I guess, from our fundraisers that, that, yeah, like it's great that we're we're able to have an impact across the world, but what about you know our backyards? Um, so that kind of led to um, expanding partnerships. But then the strategy behind which organizations to partner with, um, we really wanted to support prevention. Uh, projects. So we have a number of partners who um, do everything from foster care advocacy and kind of like way upstream up the pipeline, kind of supporting kids transitioning out of, out of foster care um, to, to prevent that entry point ever from happening, ideally. Um, and then also um, another partner that we work with, um, we had I had heard the statistic that the average survivor of trafficking could have had it, had an intervention seven times before they actually did, um, and so one of the partners that we support is an organization called Best Businesses Against Slavery and Trafficking, and what they do is they train hospitality industry workers um, to to recognize trafficking in hotels across the U.S. and um, safely partner with police to intervene. Um, 
and we hope to expand that strategy with other organizations. So there are organizations that train flight attendants. There are organizations that train truckers, um, pretty much, or like medical workers. You know, there's kind Mm -hmm. of these common frontline positions uh, where they interact with survivors and may not even know it. In fact, when BEST conducts their trainings, they survey they survey people at the beginning of the training and they all say they've never seen trafficking before. And then after they learn what trafficking actually looks like at the end of it, they take the survey again and they're like, Oh, actually I have seen this. Mm. And, um, they kind of beat themselves up about it. They feel terrible. You know, like, Oh, I could have done something. I just didn't know. Um, but now, now I know, and now, now I know what to do if I see it. So that's another one of our partners. Um, we partner with an organization called Thorn that's based in the Bay Area, and they're using technology in a really cool way to scan basically the entire internet to find um, kids that are being trafficked, cyber trafficked, um, as well as tracking uh, traffickers themselves. And they've been able to, they give all of that information to police for free. Um, and that's led to the rescue of, of something like like 5,000 children wow. in the last few years and, and a number of convictions. I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but it's um, a good number. Um, so yeah, our, our goal is to really to find and partner with organizations that are strategically dismantling trafficking from every angle because mm-hmm. it is such a profitable industry and it's such a shrewd and, um, cunning, like manipulative industry. Uh, so we, we have to be able to outsmart the traffickers and, and make it more risky for them than it is rewarding. Essentially, Mm -hmm. A number of our listeners are in transition, whether they're trying to figure out their next step in life, or maybe their kids are going to elementary school and they're going, okay, I want to do something. And I know a lot of women, uh, as our listeners are thinking, Man, I'm, I want to start an organization, maybe not necessarily about trafficking, or they want to start a project, or they want to raise money, or you know whatever. And you started something and didn't do that full time for quite some time. For somebody who's trying to figure out if they're supposed to, and I think that language, even among um, I come from a faith background, so it's almost like you know, am I supposed to do this? And whether you're part of a faith background or not, maybe it's this you know, divine calling, or am I supposed to do something? How do you know? How should somebody know? How could they know if they're supposed to start a project or an organization, whether it's about trafficking or not? You know what I mean? Like, how did did you process through that? Yeah, you know, I, it all happened so organically for me. I didn't set out to start a nonprofit. Um, yeah, I really thought I was just doing a, a one-time fundraiser or, you know, kind of approach it with curiosity. And I think, um, I think that's not a bad strategy, you know, like if there's something that you're interested in or passionate about, if you can kind of just find a way to use what you have and see like, okay, is this, um, is this something that could be worthwhile, you know, could, could this make an impact big or small locally or internationally? Um, and then really finding others who are on the same wavelength. Um, I really, really believe in the power of collaboration. I think, um, like nothing happens alone and certainly like I alone, am not going to solve this issue. Dressember alone is not going to solve this issue. And, and I think Dressember clearly, uh, reflects that, collaborative spirit of like 
you know, we are all in this together. Like it's going to take us all to solve this huge injustice. Um, so finding other people, other organizations that you can come alongside, I think is much more needed than just starting your own thing. That's my personal opinion. But I also just knew like, well, okay, if I'm, if I'm going to start something, I didn't, I didn't really have the language at the time, but Dressember functions like a foundation. We're a grant making organization and we support, um, existing boots on the ground efforts. And now that I see how, how hard it is to do what we do, (laughs) um, it's amazing to me that any nonprofit does both the fundraising and development and the programmatic work because both are incredibly taxing and, um, and just really hard for their own reasons. And so, um, yeah, I think finding a way to partner up with and support others who are on that same wavelength is the best place to start. And certainly no organization is going to be upset about someone trying to raise money for them. So, um, I think you'll be a fast, uh, a fast favorite of an organization if they see you doing something really creative or cool uh, to raise money or awareness for, for what they're doing. And then, and then you get to have this really mutual, mutually grateful relationship with an organization where they're of course grateful for you and using your voice and your creativity to, to help them. And, you are grateful for the chance to get to support work that you believe in, in a, in a meaningful way. So I hope that answers your question. That's great. That's great. As you were starting Dressember, um, what were some of the growth pains of leading a nonprofit for the first time you were writing, you were focused on fashion and then you were doing it, you know, uh, as a volunteer and then part-time. But I mean, I can't even imagine the growth pains that went, you know, through that process. What are some of the, the, more challenging things and what were the learnings through that process for you? Yeah, it was a steep growth curve. Um, surprisingly not so much in the, in the volunteer CEO days, like it was kind of, you know, it was still growing. It was very seasonal. Um, so I was able to manage like, okay, I'll work on December at night and on nights and weekends and lunch breaks. Um, and I just would start working on it months and months in advance. Um, but then when I, when I did, when I was able to transition to part-time, um, that was amazing, but it also, I felt more pressure from like my board of directors and from myself. Um, and then I felt like I was juggling more things because I was splitting my time, uh, even more so, um, and the organization was really at a point where I needed to go on full-time, but we didn't have the resources for me to do that. So I was a part-time CEO for about a year and a half, and then I came on full-time. Um, and for me, some of the challenges, like I, I never saw myself as a leader, um, I, in fact, like a couple of years ago, I was at this leadership conference and they, the speaker, one of the speakers asked us to like, think back to a time when, you know, the first time we were called out as a leader and, and go back and thank that person. And I really like racked my brain and I couldn't think of, I was like, you know, I think, 
I think the first time I was called out as a leader was like this last year or two, you know, it was just like, you know, maybe it was on the playground when such and such happened, or maybe your, one of your parents called you out. Like, and I just, um, I was like, no, I never, I don't, I don't know that I was ever sort of recognized or certainly not groomed to be a leader. And I don't know if that's because I'm a female. Um, I don't know if that's because I'm the youngest of four children and just was a natural sort of follower. Um, I did always see myself as a great sort of uh, sidekick, you know, like, oh, I can really help support someone else's vision and, and play like a second fiddle role. Um, so then as Dressember was growing, I, I just was suddenly plopped into this leadership role and really had to grow into it and, um, read a ton of leadership business books, most of which were, uh, pretty bad in my opinion, just, just not super helpful. Um, but some of, some of which were good as well. Has there been a particular book that's been most helpful for you? Um, you know, this isn't even really, I don't know if this, this would even count as a leadership book, but I, I was late in the game on reading lean in, but mm-hmm. when I read lean in, I was like, Oh, this is, this is, feels really applicable and really helpful. Um, and it also helped me sort of think through in advance what I hoped what benefits I hope to be able to offer, what is ultimately becoming a majority female staff. Um, so I really liked that one. I just recently read How Women Rise, which is written, it's co-authored by the guy who wrote What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Okay. And he even acknowledges, he acknowledges in the book um, the things that hold men back in business are different than the things that hold women back. And so in what got you here, won't got you get you there, which I haven't read. Um, but I guess one of the things in that book is like anger (laughs) and like when anger doesn't tend to hold women back in business, there are other, other factors at work. And so you don't seem um, very angry. I, I, there are things that anger me, but I, I certainly, handle it in a way that is different than probably most men, I guess. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so that was refreshing to read and that was really helpful. And it, it kind of gave me uh, a little bit of insight to maybe why a lot of those other leadership books didn't do much for me. Cause I just couldn't relate to, to many of them, I think for the same reason, like they're mm-hmm. written by men for men. And um, so yeah. So growing into a leader was, uh, has been, it's an ongoing journey, but it, it, it has been a really, um, it's been challenging. It's been exciting. It's been, um, it's been an adventure. Um, and then leading a team of people. Um, so leading this larger community of fundraisers, excuse me, but also leading this small team of, of people who are, you know, day-to-day operations. Um, I've had, I've had bosses that I loved and I've had bosses that were really difficult and I have just been determined, like I'm going to be a good boss. Um, but that was another growth curve for me because I had never, I had never managed anyone at all ever. (laughs) Um, and so I just, I started reading a lot of books about, um, 
you know, I, I already mentioned like leadership books, but there's like business leadership and then there's like, you know, team leadership. Um, so started reading a lot of those like tribal leadership and essentialism and just all these different leadership books trying to learn and, and took on a, uh, that's when I formed my advisory board um, to really understand from individual mentors uh, what makes a great leader and, and what, you know, what makes a sustainable leader and what makes a sustainable team. And, um, tell us about that. What, tell, what is your advisory board? How did you put that together? How does that help you? Yeah. So my advisory, my board of directors is more like the, you know, governing quarterly. We meet as a group. They, we talk about the budget, we talk about our grants and our strategy and our mission overall. And then the advisory board is, um, kind of my favorite. <laughs> it's what I, what I wish the board of directors was. Um, or if, if, yeah, I would much rather be on an advisory board than a board of directors, I think, cause it's just, it's, it's higher level. It's one-on-one it's, um, kind of more as needed rather than like, okay, we are going to meet every month on this day or, you know, whatever. Um, so you, and- hand, you went to these individuals and said, would you be on my advisory board? I assume this is more, uh, informal rather than a formal like advisory for the the organization yeah exactly and it so it's um we we do have kind of a a one pager of what generally the, the relationship looks like but it's much more informal and it's it's like choose your own adventure you know I always tell people when I'm telling them about the advisory board as like and inviting them onto the advisory board that um, I'm not asking you to make any commitment beyond what you're able to make, but the whole idea is having access to you and your insight. Um, and then also potentially not always, but potentially vetting them as a potential board member, if that's something that they're interested in and able to commit to usually someone on the advisory board um, is a little too busy or maybe already serving on a number of other directory boards. And so, um, yeah, that advisory board, I I try to pursue people who are kind of experts in their own, uh, fields. Mm -hmm. Um, and so then I kind of, whatever situation or issue I'm up against, I might, you know, reach out to a different one. So I have a couple people who work in, um, sort of like social impact, uh, fashion. Um, so I talk with them, they're several years down the road in their businesses. Um, and then I have someone who was the executive director of a large nonprofit for 15 years. And so he's been a great resource for, um, particularly board management and recruitment, um, board wrangling as I sometimes joke. (laughs) Um, and, and a lot of other things as well, but if I had to kind of put it in a, in a nutshell, um, and then who else I'm, I'm trying to convince someone to be on the advisory board who is kind of a nonprofit development guru. Um, so yeah, it depends on the season I'm in and what I feel is kind of needed and, and where I need to next level up. That's great. That's something it seems like we could all do, whether we have a business or not in in our own lives. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of us probably have that informally just through friends or a network, but but it would be good to, 
rather than formalizing it, informalizing, informalize it, you know, and say, hey, would you, if I ever have questions, can I reach out to you? That's good. Yeah, yeah, it is like, it's like mentorship, but I think, um, you know, even using the word mentorship or mentor, like, will you be my mentor can just be, um, it can, it can formalize something needlessly or make something kind of stiffen up that, yeah, yeah, that really, it's just like, oh, I just want to learn from you and talk to you and, Mm yeah, it can be a lot. More so back to December, uh, I noticed you're selling dresses on your website. How did that come about? Yeah. So we, we launched our first December dress back in 2014, um, or 15, gosh, one of those two. Um, And that initially came about because it became apparent very quickly, the overlap between the fashion industry and labor trafficking. Mm -hmm. Um, And there, you know, uh, a well-intended, it did not come in, come mean spirited, but there was someone who on Twitter just made the observation or the recommendation that, you know, there, there could be an unfortunate irony to our campaign that if we're encouraging everyone to wear dresses and most of them are wearing these, you know, fast fashion mass produced dresses that we are, um, inadvertently supporting trafficking through our anti-trafficking efforts. And so that really hit me and I really took it to heart. And so we immediately began finding and promoting, um, brands that, have clean production, ethical production. And, um, one brand reached out to us and wanted to partner with us. And it's a brand called Elegantees. Um, and they have a sewing center in Nepal, just outside of Kathmandu. And, um, they employ female survivors of trafficking. Um, and, uh, so they, they have their own brand and they basically, it was a dream partnership and it's been a dream just because they came to us and they're like, we'll handle, you know, we'll handle production and fulfillment and you can handle the the design side and marketing. And, um, and then we'll just share the profits in a way that's sustainable for, uh, the fair wages that we're paying our women. And then, um, we're able to contribute to, to what you're doing as well. And so we started with them with one dress and then we bumped up to three dresses and then five. And last year we had eight. And I think it's looking like we'll have eight or nine this coming year as well. Um, and the last few years we have, you know, by the time we got to like, I think it was one, one dress the first year and then three dresses the next year. And I designed all of those. And so after the three dress year, I was like, I'm out of ideas. <laughs> like, I don't know what, what other dresses I can design. So I, um, I asked, um, four or five women to be guest designers for our collection. And that was our best-selling collection yet because we had these amazing powerhouse women who helped promote these dresses in addition to like the promotion we were already doing. And so last year we did the same thing with eight styles and we'll do it again with eight or nine this coming fall. Um, but it's, it's really amazing because the more, I mean, it's two part, you know, we are educating people on that overlap. Um, the, the reality of labor trafficking in the garment industry and, um, causing people to think twice about, you know, maybe buying a dress for $10. Is that, is that really possible? Who's, who's really taking on the true cost 
of that um, and then offering them an ethical alternative that's not crazy expensive um, and it's still stylish and cute and designed by an awesome woman and supporting a survivor, a group of survivors. Um, And there's actually a waiting list of over 500 women who want to work in the sewing center. Um, And so our hope is we can create enough demand to help bring in some of those women. And we already have brought in some, but we, you know, the dream is to just no waiting list, bring them all in and uh, really kind of shift, um, shift the demand where, and, and, and I've actually, even in the last couple of years, just seen such an amazing shift um, where people are starting to become more concerned about how their clothes are made, who they are made by, how that person is treated. Um, and it seems to me that people are more willing to pay a little more for something uh, where they can feel confident that no one was exploited in order to make it. And I noticed there were no ties for sale on the website. I know. I have been trying for the last couple of years to find a tie partner and it always has fallen through for one reason or another. I, I have my eye on another one for this coming campaign season. I'm hesitant to say it'll happen because it's been twice, two years now that it's fallen through with different brands, but we'll see. I'm, I'm hopeful because this I'm excited about this one too. And we actually have a, a couple guys who I would like to work with as guest designers on the, on the tie side. So yeah, fingers crossed that will, (laughs) that will pan out. That's great. All right. Take me four or five years out from now and tell me what does dress Ember look like? What's happening? What are your dreams? You're already making dresses. What the heck? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what's, what's crazy is we're coming up on 2020 in a year and a half. Oh, no, less than a year. I'm all turned around. Anyway, our, our original vision was to raise 10 million by 2020. And we're, you know, maybe, yeah, well, we're on track to do that, which is nuts. Um, so when I look forward another four or five to 10 years, it is just, you know, continuing to expand our reach, our, our community of, of fundraisers who we call our advocates, um, and continuing to, partner with and collaborate with organizations that are dismantling trafficking. Um, I would love to find a way to better encourage collaboration among those partners. There already is a lot of collaboration, a lot of knowledge sharing, but I'd love to um, help facilitate that even more. And one thing I'd, I'd love to do eventually um, is launch a dress number conference of sorts, like a summit to bring together our supporters and advocates and experts from these different organizations and around the world to, to knowledge share and to workshop and, um, and to just spread accurate information, you know, and real stories of, of what's currently happening and the progress we're making the hope that there is around this issue and the, the systemic, change that's that's starting to happen or you know kind of writing those systemic wrongs um even a country like india in the last two years they've there's really been a massive shift where um two or three years ago india as a nation would not acknowledge that they had any slaves and of course we 
we know from statistics that half the world's slaves live in India. Um, and so they are now acknowledging it and, and therefore beginning to do something about it and making more robust laws around bonded labor and sex trafficking, um, survivor rights and protections and repatriate repatriation patriation. Anyway. Um, so it's really exciting to see that happening. Um, yeah. So just full steam ahead. Um, I do my, every year I update my three year strategic plan. So that's about as far out as I usually think. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about so many, depressing and you know downer things in this conversation but you're so right that there are so many good things that are happening and so much progress that is being made and each one of those organizations that you're partnering with and literally hundreds more in the United States and around the world are doing their own part some bigger some smaller but just great things are happening whether it's prevention or rehabilitation restoration um uh, judicial issues legal issues there's just so many great things that are happening as more and more people are becoming aware of this, this issue. Um, I, I do want to draw attention to, you've got a 5k run that's happening just days from now. And so no matter, uh, when you're listening to this, this is happening on April 13th, 2019. And this name is quite a name for an event. It's called, you can do anything in a dress or tie 5k. Mm -hmm. And I know the event itself is happening in the Los Angeles area, but I've seen how people can get involved no matter where they live. So tell us about this event. This is your second one. How can people get involved? What would you ask them to do? Yeah, so we are having our uh, sort of main event in in Los Angeles at Griffith Park on April 13th, which is a Saturday. Um, But we are also um, having a number of locally organized events. Um, So last year we had, without without really pushing it, we are make, having much of an effort to push re- remote events. We had about 11 cities across the U.S. that had remotely organized events. And so this year we're actually making an official push and we're providing a resource packet for event organizers um, to be able to, to host uh, an event in their city. And so if you're in L.A., you can or the LA area, definitely come to, come to our event. It's going to be really fun. We're, um, we're running a flat course at Griffith park and then we're doing a a yoga session afterwards sponsored by Athleta. Um, but if you're not in LA, we on our website are listing out, we're having, um, teams. So there, there's a team page on our website and all the teams are named after the city that they're located in. So if you, um, have trouble finding your, your city listed there. You can email our team, hello at dressember.org. Um, or, you know, it's either because you're not seeing it, you're not finding it or because it doesn't exist yet. And, and maybe you are the one we've been looking for to start a, start a race in your city. And it's really much easier than it might sound. It's literally plotting a, a 3.1 mile loop somewhere and, recruiting a few friends or family or coworkers to, to put on a dress or a tie and walk or run the, the route with you. Um, and we're, we are putting together kits for uh, like physical kits in addition to the digital resource guide, but physical kits for our remote runners that will include a bib and a water bottle and a headband and some other fun stuff as well to really um, make, make you feel a little more involved. 
And that three point one mile loop can be at a park. It doesn't have to be on a street. It could be at a park. It could be a, a school, a high school, an elementary school, a, a university. Uh, so yeah. there's yeah, fact, it- yeah, a park would be perfect because you don't have to deal with crosswalks and waiting and cars and everything. That's great. Yeah, and we're raising money for a, uh, an organization here in Los Angeles called CAST, which is the Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking. They've been around for 20 plus years, and they are doing amazing work um, both here in, the, in LA and also across the U.S. Uh, in terms of survivor advocacy. Um, they work directly with, you know, emergency immediate response, um, safe housing, but then also on the, on the judicial side, um, they do a number of, of things in terms of legal advocacy for survivors. So anything from direct court representation, case management, all the way to, um, policy change where, um, you know, we talked about survivors having a criminal record and, um, and then that preventing them from being able to really truly move forward in their lives. Um, and so what CAST does is advocate for, for changes in the law, um, like expunging, um, certain criminal record, you know, a criminal record for a survivor, mm-hmm. um, or someone who was, um, trafficked in the U S uh, being able to obtain a, a T visa or ultimately citizenship. So that, that sort of thing kind of on the full spectrum of, of restoration. Great. So this 5k second annual 5k, people can uh, go to your website, dressember.org. They can go to our show notes and we'll link them directly to sign up April 13th, 2019. And you can host one in your own area. Now I got to ask you, cause I, I, I don't mind asking awkward questions. You're either rubbing your leg intensely oh. <laughs> or your dog. My dog is right here. <laughs> Come on, let, let introduce us. Let's see. Who, oh, yeah. my goodness. So, <laughs> this is Friday. Friday. <laughs> Hi, Friday. So yeah. Beautiful. Friday's got his or her own Instagram, I believe. Am I right? She does. Yeah. That's, um, that was initially my idea. And then my, my husband kind of upkeeps it because we're shamelessly obsessed with our dog she's yo girl friday on on instagram yo girl friday she's got some big eyes look at her yeah she is she still really looks like a puppy even though she's two which means she gets away with a lot of bad behavior that's great so beautiful dogs are awesome we have a um half i think well i say half half dogs and half uh terrier and uh, she's 12 year old rescue and she's awesome uh, her Instagram is Lexington Trotter. If you ever want to check it out. So, okay, I will. Uh, <laughs> well, Bly, thank you so much for taking time, educating us. We're very excited about what you're doing. And so, um, I'm going to encourage people to be there to see if my family can be out there on April 13th. We don't live too far away. We're in orange County. So I'd love to come awesome. up and support you guys. So, um, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, David. Really, really appreciated the opportunity to be on your show. Be sure to check out dressember.org to learn more about the 5K and all the other ways that you can get involved in the great work they're doing. You can also find our show notes for every episode at launchyourself.today. You can find the links to connect with Blythe. And if you're interested in watching my documentary, I'll post that link in the show notes as well. But don't miss the daily inspirational quotes and videos and episodes that we post on social media. 
You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Our goal is to help you take your life to the next level through all the content that we're putting out into the world. Until next time, go launch yourself. <laughs>